Hello, hello, I am your host and ref, Carol Ponchon from Lyon, France. And it is my great pleasure to welcome you to the ring as two fearless women spar about their trailblazing journeys in sport. On today's episode, we travel to Australia and New Zealand to hear from two strong women who share a passion for sports and the importance of diversity in leadership and decision-making position. In the right corner, from Australia, is Shiloh Curtis. Shiloh is the Female Engagement Senior Manager for Golf Australia and Director of Own Journey. As one of Australia's most proeminent sport manager and innovators, she's driven by a passion for diversity, equity and inclusion. Welcome, Shiloh. Hi, Carol. Great to be here. And we're also joined on the left corner by another powerful female leader in sport, Julie Patterson from New Zealand. Julie is Chief Executive Officer at Tennis New Zealand and Co-Chair of Women in Sport Aotearoa. She has an extensive career as a sport administrator and is one of just a handful of women leading a national sport organization in New Zealand. She knows what it takes to kick bias and prejudice out of the way when advancing sporting opportunities for all. Kia ora, Julie. <laughs> kia ora, Carol, and kia ora, Shiloh. Uh, it's great to be here. Ladies, I'm so impassioned. I cannot wait for you to take us to Australia and New Zealand and help us understand the cultural and political context of your fight for gender equity in sport management. The floor is yours. So off we go for round one of this episode. Well, Julie, we've got a lot in common. And one thing that's not been mentioned is our participation in the Global Sports Mentoring Program and what we call the GSMP. So the GSMP is a sports diplomacy, women's empowerment initiative sponsored by the US State Department and implemented by um, the pretty amazing team at the University of Tennessee Center for Sport, Peace and Society. I'm sure we'll be able to talk about this amazing experience. So I wanted to give the audience a little bit of uh, this important background. I'm really grateful to be spending this short time with you and learn from your experiences. But before us jump, jumping straight into the deep end, I want people to understand a little bit about who Julie is and, uh, and what you're about. So two fun questions to get us started. What is your favourite book and why? Look, I love reading. I read a lot of novels and I'm starting to get, I have to say, a lot better at reading non-fiction books. And one of the books that really stands out for me was Andre Agassi's autobiography. And I, I loved that book because it was really raw and honest. And but it was just such an amazing story of what you need to be to be an incredibly successful tennis player. So, yeah, it was, that's one of my favorites. I've heard a lot of really good things about that book. And in fact, a lot of people that I've spoken to about autobiographies have come back to that book and said it really knocked their socks yeah. off. It was quite an amazing read and really vulnerable and and quite open so the second question we've got for you today is if you could time travel to any time in history where where would it be and why where would I travel to that's a really interesting thing I don't think I'd like to go into the future because I wouldn't want to you know go into the future and then come back to where I am and all of these things that might worry me for the, the rest of my life I think I would like to go back to in my parents age you know in the in their growing up environment to understand more about what shaped them to be the people that they are 
and to be living in a, in a, I guess, a slightly slower time where things are, are still, you know, relatively modern, but not as fast paced as they are now and not as so technology driven as they are now, just that kind of slower Kiwi lifestyle, that way of life. Well, maybe that's kind of 2020 anyway, because it was pretty slow. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for sharing and certainly um, warming up our audience with some insights into who you are. So the core of the episode we want to get into right now. So you've been in the sports industry for a long time compared to some of our younger GSMP sisters, apparently. I think you and I are probably similar vintage and in the evolution in sports around New Zealand, but also around the world. Tell us a little bit about the landscape of women's sports in New Zealand now and where you're headed in the near future. So I think I, what, what I'll do is I'll just go back a little bit to when I did start those many years ago when I started working in sport. And, you know, I think the environment has changed quite a lot over probably the last 15, certainly 15 years ago, things have changed quite significantly. But that's really only happened in, I would say, in the last three years where things have started to, to really speed up in the change. And a lot of that has been driven by, to be quite frank, a new government. Our Minister of Sport, who is still currently the Minister of Sport, Grant Robertson, when he was appointed, he came along to the first Women and Girls Conference that we held in New Zealand and stood up and made his maiden speech as the Minister of Sport and stated that his number one priority while he was the Minister of Sport was going to be raising the visibility of value of women and girls in sport and sporting opportunities. And that was an absolute game changer for our sporting environment. When you start having a, a government-led approach around this and then funding that's attached to it and also targets being brought in, they developed a strategy which has 24 initiatives in it. Sport New Zealand has said that any entity or partner of Sport New Zealand that is funded over $50,000 is required to have a minimum um, gender diversity of 40% on their boards. And that really starts to create questions in people's minds or creating opportunities for people to think about doing things differently. New Zealand has very successfully bid very recently for the Rugby World Cup, the Cricket World Cup, the International Working Group Conference in 2022, and not least of all, the 2023 FIFA World Cup to be shared across New Zealand and Australia. And these events are going to make a significant difference both across Australia and New Zealand. Yeah, it's a pretty exciting time and, you know, certainly over here, keeping a very close eye on the New Zealand government initiatives and I do feel like in some ways, you know, you're just one step ahead of us. What I do love about your reflections is the power of government. For me, that idea of attitude reflects leadership and social leadership comes from government. If the government aren't going to, you know, kick the doors off the hinges for women and girls, then how can they expect anyone else in the society to do that? So it's really fantastic to see the power of of a shifting government being able to create that trickle-down change that everyone's got to fall into. A piece around mandating change at board level and, and representation at board level, it seems like there's a, there's a suite of incentives or carrots and, and then the occasional stick as well, but there seems like there's a suite of approaches to getting more women into leadership at that level that the government's taken as well. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think you're absolutely right because across Australia and New Zealand, there has been a lot of really amazing things that have been happening. But I think certainly in New Zealand, they were happening in pockets of isolation and there was no kind of coordinated approach or coordinated strategy. And that was one of the things that Women in Sport Aotearoa was very much about was creating, I guess, a vehicle or a central point for people to be able to bring all of that information together and a central point for people being able to access what's actually happening. 
And then so you just start creating layers of conversations, start pushing media around better visibility, better stories about women in sport. And so there's different layers of things that need to happen, but I 100% agree. When the government actually says that this is a priority, then people do tend to sit up and listen a little more. Yeah, it's one thing to say it's a priority. It's another thing to follow through with action and making sure that policy is not a two plus tiger. Yeah, so last question for you today, Julie, is that in terms of crisis, how have you managed and what have you learned that you might be able to share with the rest of us? Look, I think just really quickly and in times of of crisis, I think the, the most important thing is to look after your people. The first thing that you have to do is really make sure that the people within your organisation feel as comfortable as you can make them feel and as confident in your leadership. And that comes through communicating really well. So being really clear about your communication, being as honest as you possibly can. There are times when you can't be as honest as you would like to, but trying to make sure that you communicate on a really regular basis and keep people really engaged in the conversation and as much as possible, keep your people part of finding solutions. Of course, there are times when you've just got to make decisions really quickly and get on with things. You don't have to be a perfectionist. You just need to be able to make good, quick decisions and keep people engaged and communicate well. Yeah, it's a good reflection. And certainly over the last 12 months, we've all had a really good lesson in leading through crisis. I think that piece around yeah. taking care of people, absolutely really important. Final question. What was your most emotional moment in the GSMP, the Global Sports Mentoring Program? Oh gosh, that's quite a tricky one. I had a lot of emotional moments through Global Sport Mentoring. I had a lot of really funny times. I spent a lot of time with my group when I was in New York. There were five of us that were all sharing the same accommodation together and we became quite close. And as as we've already pointed out at the beginning of the interview, quite disparate age groups, age range, life experiences, all of those sorts of things. But that that was probably a really... fabulous moment for me of being able to spend a lot of time with people much younger than me who I who I loved hanging out with loved the experiences learned so much from is that an emotional moment probably not but it was it was just it was a great experience and I really cherish that time and and thinking back on it as well and that's hand over hand one we are now moving to round two with Julie interviewing Shiloh so Shiloh, shoes on the other foot now. We are going to get on to some deeper questions, but I also want the audience to find out a little bit about your personality. I wonder if you could let me know, if you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Chocolate. Chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just chocolate. If you, if you didn't have to get the consequences of only eating chocolate. Oh, yeah, no, we're not thinking about that. Yeah, no, I quite understand that. Just a real feel-good factor, absolutely. What would the title of your memoir be? Oh, headbutting brick walls. <laughs> <laughs> something like that. Yeah. How to headbutt brick walls and overcome or something like that. Yeah. Oh, I like that. I think that's got a bit of a ring to it. And I think it certainly does give a bit of a, a feel for the way that you approach things, but also I guess a bit of that determination in your personality because you don't, Clearly, if you're headbutting wars, you're not just doing it once. You you can you keep going back because it's important, and you just keep doing it and doing it to to keep pushing on for that change. Yeah, I think that's important. But I also think across my career, I've learned that there's more than one way 
to deal with that wall. You've got to find workarounds. If you can't go over, you can't go under, you know, you can't headbutt through it. You know, headbutting probably should be the last resort, in fact. And sometimes in my career, it's been the only option I've had. But certainly in my, what I've got now at Golf Australia, I've got a lot of license to use different means to get through or around that wall, which is really awesome. Shiloh, you were part of the inaugural uh, Global Sport Mentoring Class in 2012. And I know since then you have stayed involved with the program and every generation of sisters. I'm really interested to hear your perspective on the changes you have seen in the program, but also to what extent you see this program as an embodiment of the international legacy or impact of Title IX. My first reflection is that last time I spoke to them, they just seemed really young last year. Not last year, the year before, I should say 2019, but maybe it's just that I'm getting a little bit older. But uh, look, I think the quality of people that get through the selection process, the diversity of people that get through the selection process and, and the way in which the cohort is crafted, it's not just choosing this person and that person, but it's this person and that person and how they will fit together to create the overall experience for everyone. So I think that's one of the keys of, of the GSMP is it's not just the 17 women, but it's the cohort. In terms of Title IX, yes, it's an American policy, but you think about some of the government stuff that we spoke about earlier, Julie, you know, government putting, you know, mandates in place around representation and how funding is used and spent, you know, some of that might be able to be tied back to the learnings that have come out of Title IX and the benefits of such a policy. So I do think other countries have looked to Title IX over the years to see what are the benefits of government actually mandating or legislating for equal investment and equal development, you know, for, for not just women and girls, but lots of different groups in the community. And I guess you look at some elements of the American sporting industry, especially the college system, and, and it can be certainly the envy of other countries. We have many golfers from Australia who get golfing scholarships now and they mm -hmm. go and continue university education over in the US because the level of investment is so great in women's sport there because of Title IX. But had, had the investment been what it was, say, 50, 55 years ago in, in the US sports system, we wouldn't have that resource for global emerging athletes because the US college system actually serves the global emerging athlete community, not just the American athlete community. So I think it's been really, really instrumental. Yep, I agree. So just moving on uh, to a little bit more about Australia. From the sport development perspective and knowing about your storied career as an athlete, but also as a leader in Aussie rules football and now at Golf Australia, I'm curious to hear about the current landscape of developing women's sport in Australia. I spent that 10 years at AFL Victoria helping to build AFLW and it was brick walls and headbutts and it was just so hard. It was arduous and exhausting and tiring and, and, and demoralising at times. And something happened that sort of things all happened at the same time. We got the AFLW up and going, but before that, Australia had the WBBL. You know, keep in mind that we've had a women's professional basketball league in Australia for 40 years now. And the Matildas just kept showing up and doing great things at on the international stage at the World Cup and beyond. So around the same time, it, it just felt like something changed, something burst. And it's like there was an aligning of the planets or the stars or something. And all of a sudden, people could see the value in investing in, women's, in women and girls in sport. And they're all now trying to outdo each other, all, especially the male codes, like the, the football code, soccer and Australian football and the two rugby codes and cricket to some extent as well, all just trying to outdo each other, which is like, 
fantastic. It's like they've all just discovered that women and girls can play sport really well. The world's really changed here and we've got more professional women's sporting leagues than any other nation in the world, which is pretty exciting. So it's interesting you say that actually, because you said at the beginning of the interview with me that you felt that New Zealand was quite a way ahead of Australia. And actually, I've felt for many years that Australia is is quite a way ahead than New Zealand. And so I'm going a little bit off script here, but one of the statements that we were talking about today in New Zealand is that gender equity is not widely understood or genuinely valued and actioned in the New Zealand sport and recreation sector. Do you think that is the same in Australia or do you think that that mindset has shifted quite quite significantly over the years? I think it's shifted quite significantly, but are we there yet? No, I don't mm. think so. I think there's a lot of investment in women and girls in sport because it's, it's a good business investment. Is the investment authentic, you know, around it's, we're doing it because it's the right thing to do and it's good for women and girls? Is that attitude widely adopted by everyone yet? No. Are we on our way? Yeah, I think we are. Because I think there are, ironically, a lot of the key decision makers who are men, who've got daughters, who are now taking up these opportunities and now having the experience of their daughter not being valued authentically and equally. And so they're getting angry about it because finally that's us affecting them. And so there's a level of self-interest in it for some of the key decision makers. So now it's not just a good business decision, it's now a good decision for women and girls and for people because it's directly affecting them. And that's happening far and wide um, over here. I do think there's a shift, but we're not, we're not there yet. So last question, I know that the Australian women's football, which is soccer team for our American audience, has helped lead the way towards greater pay equity. How has their battle and the support they've garnered along the way made it easier for women in other areas of Australian sport to push for greater equity, if not true equality? Yeah, it's interesting what our Matildas have done around the push for pay equality. Really, really powerful effort by them. And what's been great is the women, the other professional athletes from other sports have really backed them in that push because they know if, if soccer does that, then cricket will have to do that, then rugby will have to do that, then the AFL will have to do that. Pushing for pay equality for soccer players isn't just for female soccer players, it's for female athletes across the board because it one one will support the others. It's, it's that case of, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. It was really fantastic to see the Matildas do that and all the other athletes from the other sports get around and support those girls as well. That's head of round two. We are now moving to round three with ladies discussing about empowerment. We are running out of time, but let's do a quick final question. What's your definition of empowerment? Oh, having no internal or external barriers to your own belief in your ability to take action and choose your own next steps. Yep. Yeah, very similar. My, my view about empowerment, my definition is really about the ability to have the confidence to control your own decisions in your own life and the things that you want to do. Yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty on the money. Yeah, yeah, good. Oh, so it's been wonderful to share this episode with you, Shiloh. Thank you very much for stepping into the ring. And thanks to our audience for tuning into this week's episode. We hope that you learned something new about women's sport development and management in Australia and New Zealand, and that you leave feeling inspired to make a difference in your own community. Social change is a team sport, and we're counting on you to join us as we celebrate the global impact of Title IX. Here are some easy ways to get in on the action. 
click the like button, subscribe to our channel and share this podcast with your family, friends and colleagues. Leave your questions and comments on social media. And remember, you can listen to more episodes of the Strong Women's Better World podcast series on your favourite podcasting platform.